From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, May 14th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Syria risks sliding into a civil war. We're going to hear how some Syrians are coping with the rising tension. Also, Palestinian prisoners end their hunger strike after winning concessions from Israel. One activist calls it the beginning of a third intifada. It is nonviolent. It's popular. There is no other way for us. And a trader nicknamed the London Whale lost J.P. Morgan billions. Was he alone? How many other whales are there? Um, if there are that many whales, how many other pods going with the whales? PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The crisis in Syria is looking more like civil war. The violence today focused on the central city of Rastan. Opposition sources say the city was shelled overnight by the Syrian army. Clashes followed between the army and activists. The activists say 30 people were killed, 23 of them soldiers. The tension in Syria is rising by the day. It's palpable in Damascus. The capital was hit last week by twin suicide bombings. The world's Laura Lynch left Damascus this morning. She's now in London. She was in Syria all last week and spoke with a variety of Syrians about the crisis. Most of them didn't want to speak into a microphone. They were afraid of repercussions. But some did agree to speak informally about how the crisis has affected their lives. For some of the people I talked to, It meant taking strategic moves during different days of the week. Most of the demonstrations happen on Fridays, which are the days when people gather in mosques for Friday prayers. And and usually the protests spill out onto the street after that. And that's when there are clashes with the security forces. So some people are actually moving their families out of their homes on Fridays and Saturdays to other what they consider to be safer locations for those two days until things calm down again because they can hear the gunfire. They think it's too much of a risk for their families, so they get out, and then they go back in on Sunday, and they're there for the rest of the week. So people are afraid of the violence. How scared are people of the Assad regime, of the government? I think I got a sense of that in in talking to one man who is in a neighborhood that he says actually hasn't had a lot of protests and demonstrations, but it has experienced um, security agents going door to door searching for sympathizers with the opposition. And he would like to see change in his country. Uh, He's not necessarily a big supporter of Assad, but his children are so frightened that they have repeatedly put a picture of Assad in the window of the house to try to deter anyone from coming to their house and searching it. He also says that they've put a picture of Assad as a screensaver on their laptop computer so that when they open up the computer, anyone who's looking at it will see and think that they are very pro-Assad. So that gives you some measure of the fear that that exists. And these are in young people. Uh, I I suspect that that's true for some older people as well, but the young are, are feeling especially vulnerable. I did talk to one other man who recounted a 
a really hard conversation that he was having with his eight-year-old son who just didn't understand what was going on in his country. He was trying to explain to him, he's asking why are Syrians fighting each other? Those basic kind of child's questions about what's going on in the country that seems so unimaginable to him. And this man and his wife and his child are now trying to seriously consider whether it's time to get out of Syria, as are many others. Those are people who have the means to leave Syria and could live somewhere else. For many others, that's simply not an option. By the way, did he tell you that father whose child asked why Syrians are fighting each other, did he tell you what his response was? He said he was trying to explain it in the most simple terms possible, but it was still difficult for an eight-year-old to understand that, that there could be people of the same country who were clashing with each other. And he's still not sure that his son actually understands what's going on. And he, he says, well, why should he? This doesn't make sense to those of us who are adults. Did you speak to anybody who is pro-government, pro-Assad? Yes, and when you speak to those people, they are not terribly shy about speaking to you at all, on tape or not. And I've met several over the days in Damascus who speak fiercely proudly of the president and of his government and how they've given Syria so much, a good economy, they've given Syria stability, and that the people who are fighting them are thugs, uh, they are foreign-funded fighters, and they don't want them on Syrian soil anymore. They believe that these people have ruined a country that was doing so well. They also say to me that Assad is making steps toward what they consider to be true reform and that he just needs more time. So even they, in their support of Assad, recognize the need for reform in their country. They just don't want it to happen this way. The time that you were there in Damascus, Syria, um, did you find, Laura, that it's a city where you can still get a cup of coffee or go out to a restaurant? Or is it more a city in lockdown? It still is in many parts of the city, large parts of the city, very easy to move around, very easy to go to a nice restaurant and get a nice meal. As you said, go to a cafe, have a cup of coffee. It seems if you're in certain parts of town that there is no problem at all. And you'll see lots of Damascenes going out and enjoying themselves. But if you look around, and you don't have to look far, all I had to do was look in the hallways of my incredibly empty hotel. I don't think I saw another person staying on the same floor as me the whole time I was there. You get a sense that the tourism industry, at the very least, is taking a huge hit in Syria, and it depends on that industry. I saw very few tourists there. There were several journalists around and some businessmen, but boy, they are really suffering for lack of people coming into the country. The world's Laura Lynch, who has just returned from Syria. Thank you, Laura. You're welcome. You can find more of Laura's reporting from Syria, including her pictures of the devastated city of Homs. That's at theworld.org. To Israel now, where today Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails agreed to take a step that should diffuse tensions there. They said they'll end a mass hunger strike that has raised fears of a bloody Palestinian backlash if any of the inmates had died. Egypt helped broker this deal. Most of the 1,600 or so prisoners began refusing food 28 days ago. They were demanding more family visits, an end to solitary confinement, and an easing of so-called administrative detention. The world's Matthew Bell reports. The news broke this morning. A deal was in the works. Egyptian officials were acting as mediators between Israel's prison service and the prison leaders of the Palestinian political factions and militant groups. As the leadership of the hunger-striking prisoners discussed the terms of the proposed agreement this afternoon, 
Some of the prisoners' relatives continue to sit in protest in Ramallah. A woman in a black headscarf who gave her name as Im Fayrouz was there with her three young daughters. When we talk about the prisoners' issue, we, we are talking about a core issue in Palestinian society. This is the most important issue. They are our fathers, they are our sons, they are our husbands. This wasn't the first hunger strike by Palestinian prisoners, but public attention has grown with near-daily protests in the West Bank and Gaza. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas said he was worried. If one of the prisoners died, he said it could spark a national disaster. But Palestinian legislator Mustafa Barghouti paid a visit to the protest tent in Ramallah today and liked what he saw. What's happening is that people are now more and more convinced with the power of nonviolent resistance, that you can get victory from power of nonviolent resistance. And in my opinion, the third intifada has started. But it is nonviolent. It's popular. People don't recognize that because they are not used to this form of, of resistance. But it's going to continue. There is no other way for us to get our freedom except through nonviolent resistance. Confirmation of a deal came late in the day today, and Palestinians celebrated. A woman in Gaza City flashed a V for victory sign and thanked God. A spokesman for Hamas says all of the main demands of the prisoners have been met. On the key issue of imprisonment without trial, Israel has apparently agreed not to extend prison terms for about 300 prisoners being held under administrative detention unless there is new evidence against them. An Israeli official briefed on the terms of the deal told me that family visits from Gaza are likely to be allowed. Inmates will also have more opportunities for education. It's not clear whether the Israeli prison service will end the practice of solitary confinement, and the official I spoke to said it's also unlikely that Israel would fully abandon administrative detention in the future. After all, he said the United States still detains people without charges or trial. A spokesman for the Israeli prime minister's office said the deal to end the hunger strike came in response to a request from Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, The Israeli spokesman said the government's hope was that the gesture would help build confidence between the parties and move forward toward peace. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. It's a whale of a tale that has financial regulators reeling and heads rolling. Today, J.P. Morgan announced that a senior executive involved in the firm's $2 billion trading loss is leaving the company. The traders nicknamed the London Whale for the enormous volume of his risky business. The whale is still employed. J.P. Morgan promises to investigate the matter and learn from its mistakes. Now, this sort of corporate failure is exactly what American regulators were hoping to eradicate after the 2008 financial collapse on Wall Street. Yet, it's happened again, by way of London this time. Justin Urquhart Stewart has worked in the British capital's financial district for many years now. He's director and co-founder of Seven Investment Management. We asked him earlier today how many other whales are lurking in London. 
We have a limited supply of whales, I'm pleased to say, although there are some, and of course in the past we've had a history of them. The reason being, of course, London is the most international market. It's not the world's largest market at all, but it is very international. So in terms of overseas traders coming in, in terms of overseas banks, we get a huge number of different areas coming in. Could you describe and compare the, the level of regulation right now in places like the UK versus uh, the United States? The United States would be looked upon as having far more detailed regulation. The SEC is seen as being a very intrusive regulator and one which is actually making sure they were controlling every aspect. Whereas, of course, in the United Kingdom, it was seen as much more a light-touch regulator overall. Uh, and in hindsight, of course, that was a huge mistake and we needed a regulator, not so much with a heavy touch, but a more intelligent regulator that actually understood the transactions going on. And, of course, that was the problem. We had more and more complex derivative trades and the regulator who were supposed to be looking after didn't understand them. The bankers were a different style of bankers than the one before. And then we also had a government that actually moved the regulation of the banks out of the Bank of England, the primary regulator, to a brand new regulator called the Financial Services Authority, who didn't know anything about it at all. So a combination of issues came together with more trading, more risk, and less understanding. Yeah, more trading and, and more risk, and some would say more kind of straight-up uh, gambling versus actual business being done. Yes, and you can come across this in the form of spread betters, and I don't know how prevalent they are in the United States, but these are basically gambling houses by any other name, except they've put themselves with a pair of braces on to look a little bit smarter, uh, and uh, frankly uh, are no more oh, than, than so the this, average public. Sorry, we should explain braces being suspenders. Oh, I'm sorry. That's yes, okay. that means something else over here. Uh, so uh, as I'm wearing my suspenders now, <laughs> of course, hopefully I'm not one of those spread betters, but nonetheless what you would find is that these houses tend to be uh, quite literally betting uh, and aren't really in running investment structures that we would normally understand. So there has been this element of higher risk, but a lot of this is now coming home to roost. Having said that, people like the London Whale, are there many of those around taking those level of risks? That I doubt very much indeed, because since the financial crisis of only a few years ago, a lot of that was supposed to have been tightened up. Mind you, we were supposed to have been tightened up at JP Morgan as well. So really, one now looks around and say, wonders how many other whales are there? Um, if there are that many whales, how many other pods going with the whales? Justin Urquhart-Stewart, director and co-founder of Seven Investment Management, speaking to us from London. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Goodbye. Holding artwork hostage to the Budget Acts, coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Climate change is a global problem, but it affects different parts of the world in different ways. One country that's experiencing the most dramatic changes is Mongolia. Average temperatures there have shot up in recent years, and the weather's become much more volatile and unpredictable. The world's Daniel Grossman recently traveled to Mongolia. He met traditional nomadic herders who are confronting climate change and an American scientist who's using somewhat unconventional means to collect climate data. Two young Mongolian girls tend shaggy yaks corralled in a broad green valley near the Siberian border. (laughs) Nearby, the girls' grandparents invite guests into their gear, a round tent used by Mongolia's nomadic herders. 
The hosts offer tea in tiny cups, heavily salted and made with yak milk, boiled over a crackling fire. Next come chips of dried yak cheese. The herders are named Karuchaloon and Bimba. The couple has tended livestock here for about 20 years, and their guests are Clyde Goulden, a scientist from Drexel University in Philadelphia, and his Mongolian wife, Tuya. Gulen has worked in this part of Mongolia for about two decades, and for the last few years he's been interviewing local herders. He says the meetings always follow the same basic pattern. First comes the tea, then the cheese, and then pleasantries. What was the winter like? You know, how are your animals? Where's your daughter? Where's your son? From his methods, you might think Gulden's an anthropologist, but he's an ecologist. He'd been studying Mongolian forests and grasslands when he noticed that his research site had warmed up dramatically. He soon learned that since the 1940s, Mongolia as a whole has warmed more than almost anywhere else on Earth, about 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Gulen wanted to know what this meant for the region's nomads, so he began interviewing them. As always, today's visit continues with standardized questions like, have the seasons changed? Tuya translates that the weather has gotten much worse in recent years. And sudden cold is causing the biggest problem. Extreme weather, and it's causing the death of animals. Karuchaloon and Bimba also complain of changing rainfall patterns. Goulden hears this often, that instead of gentle light rains that might last for two or three days, the region these days mostly gets short downpours. He says the locals call these rains that don't wet and instead run off into creeks, leaving behind dry soil and poor grass. The herders say this is a huge problem. If the grass is not growing well, and what the animals will eat. If the animals die, what's future for us? Goulden says it's a common lament. He says herders also complain it's gotten harder to predict the weather. They used to be able to forecast and prepare for conditions by watching things like how smoke moved away from stovepipes, what field mice stored away in autumn, or whether ibex moved to summits or valleys in winter. But Goulden says these omens don't work anymore. The weather has become much more unpredictable, so it's much more difficult for them to anticipate what the next winter might be. Despite the dismal news, today's interview, as usual, ends on a festive note. The family invites the Americans to dinner and offers them a Mongolian delicacy, stuffed yak intestine. Karuchaloon breaks out his accordion and his best vodka. They toast a friendship and long life and sing into the night. Goulden's had scores of such encounters, and he says that herders turn out to be a remarkable repository of information about both regional climate change and how ecosystems are responding. He says they've noticed problems that scientists hadn't predicted. And the interviews illuminate the human side of the dramatic changes that global warming is bringing to Mongolia. Almost every Mongolian 
can feel that impact of climate change in our daily life. Yerdin Chulun Zurit is the environment advisor to Mongolia's president. In an office in the capital, Ulaanbaatar, Zurit goes as far as to say that climate change threatens Mongolia's future. Such fears are shared by many Mongolian leaders. Because uh, these changes are taking place more rapidly in Mongolia than maybe in any other place in the world. I met Naima Inkbold in Ulaanbaatar's main square. He's vice chairman of the country's parliament. Up to 60-70% of the Mongolian territory is now under threat of uh, desertification. That's bad news for the roughly half of the country's people who still need healthy pastures to raise livestock. Inkbold says desertification could eventually wipe out Mongolia's ancient nomadic lifestyle. Herders would have to flee the countryside, leaving behind their traditions and livelihood. It's already happening here in Ulaanbaatar. The population is swelling with former nomads, whose white tents carpet hillsides around the capital. They leave herding for many reasons, but changing weather patterns is a common theme. It's unlikely this human flood will end, but ecologist Clyde Goulden hopes his research might help at least some herders find ways to adapt to their new conditions and preserve their nomadic traditions. For The World, I'm Daniel Grossman, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Daniel Grossman's story was produced with help from the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Now, Daniel brought back a couple of great online extras from Mongolia. One of them is a recording of what's said to be one of the country's best songs about motherhood performed on the accordion. And the other is a video of the National Festival of Games known as Nadam, featuring wrestling, archery, and equestrian events. It's all at theworld.org. Time for our GeoQuiz now, which takes us to southern Italy. The city we're looking for today is a stone's throw from Naples. It's located in the Italian region of Campania. Mount Vesuvius is not too far to the south. To the west lies the Tyrrhenian Sea. The coastline and the volcano attract plenty of tourists to this beautiful region, but we are looking for something a little more artistic, a contemporary art museum in the city we're asking you about. The museum's director says his institution is struggling to make ends meet. He wants to highlight what he considers government indifference to the museum's financial woes. So he's begun burning the museum's art collection one piece at a time. Where is this fiery protest going on? The answer's coming up. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Portuguese migrants head to former colony Brazil to find jobs, but they wish they didn't have to. Portugal is is a country that could give us a good education, could prepare us for a competitive world, but couldn't give us a job. And that's just crazy. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. A week after elections, Greece is no closer to having a government. The elections shattered the political status quo and left no party with enough power to rule on its own. Now Greek politicians cannot agree on how to move forward. The main stumbling block is the issue of austerity. The old government slashed the budget to keep Greece from defaulting and crashing out of the eurozone. But austerity is anathema to the parties that scored big gains at the polls last week. Meanwhile, many ordinary Greeks are struggling to stay employed. Athens resident Theodora Economides is lucky enough to have occasional work, but she's had to go outside the country to find it. By profession, I'm a need worker. I started working as a teacher, but then I got involved in humanitarian aid. So this is what I do for a living, essentially. I mean, you've been to many places, including Kenya and Somalia, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, yeah, it's completely different. Comparing Greece to Somalia doesn't even begin to make sense. But uh, on the other hand, there's no good reason we should be going backwards. And this is what is actually happening. I mean, there are things that are happening in Greece now with uh, people dumpster diving, for example, or homelessness. Because Greece is a traditional society where we had very strong family ties, these were things that were unheard of. So even though we were never a very rich society, we were a society where family solidarity would keep everything would keep things together. Now this is falling apart. So this is why I believe that what is happening to us is a disaster, because we've already gone easily 30 years back in terms of economic and social development, and we don't want to go any further. Uh, You were a teacher, as you say, by profession. You were also an aid worker. Uh, You've been a journalist and author. What do you do for a living now? Well, right now what I do is that I take a humanitarian job for a few months, make some money, come to Greece, eat up my money, and then go abroad again because I completely gave up finding a job in Greece. You mean you have, you have no steady work? No, 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 no. Well, I mean, it, it, part of it is the nature of the profession because in humanitarian work, by definition, jobs are project-based. But in Greece, I have, it's not that I have no steady work. I have no work, period. What do you do when you're not embarking on aid work, then? What do you do? Can you rely on your own family for help? Well, yes, I can rely on my mother, who lives in Greece. And so when I'm in Greece, I'm staying with her, and uh, we share share the expenses of our house. And uh, I do a lot of volunteer work while I'm here. But there is this absurd situation for me where I end up going to work in Somalia for a few months in order to make money and come and stay in Greece. Your mother herself? I wonder if you can... Oh, sorry. It begins to make sense. I mean, theoretically, you don't go to a country like Somalia to find work. You go to Germany or to the UK or to wherever. Or you should be able to find work in Greece. But because there is no work in Greece, I'm just taking any job abroad so that I can have some savings and come here and spend some time here. Is that the money you use to pay your bills with, or is it your mother helping out with that? Well, we're sharing. Uh, actually, we live in, I live together with her. My mom is a pensioner. Uh, her pension, to give you an idea, I mean, she was a university professor, so she was getting a pretty good pension. She was getting, getting 1,800 euros before the crisis. Now her pension has been cut to 1,300 euros which is still a very uh, decent uh, income 
in Greece, but it does give you an idea of the, the size of the cuts that were imposed on people. Roughly, roughly cut by a third. So 1,300 euros would be roughly about uh, $1,700 a month. You say it's, it's uh, enough to live on there, but still she's taken a big cut. Taken a big cut, and she, for example, she doesn't pay rent because she owns her house. If she didn't own her house, she would have a problem. Do you have family of your own, Theodora? No, luckily, because in this crisis, I don't know how I would manage if I had a family of my own. That's Athens resident Theodora Economides, who's describing the impact of austerity on ordinary Greeks. Portugal is also in the midst of an economic crisis, and people there are also struggling to make ends meet. Many of them are leaving the country to search for jobs elsewhere. One favorite destination is Portugal's former colony, Brazil. The economy in Brazil continues to grow, thanks in part to booming oil and gas industries. Lily Jamali reports from Rio. Ines Souza came to Brazil for a new start. In January, the 25-year-old from Portugal decided to leave her home country and join her Portuguese boyfriend 5,000 miles away in Brazil. I came with two bags to live here and I didn't know the place. I've never been here before, so I came to live here and work here. Unemployment in Portugal stands at more than 15 percent, and Portugal is enduring its third recession in four years. In that environment, Sousa realized that her master's degree in international relations wouldn't be enough to secure her a good job back home. And she's not alone. Sousa is one of thousands of Portuguese flocking to Brazil. I really love Portugal. It's an amazing country, and I, I really want to live there later. But now I won't be able to pay a room. Your family and yourself invest so much money and time and patience, and it's really hard to live there. Sousa works part-time at an NGO while she looks for permanent work. Her boyfriend, Francisco Cruz, had an easier time when he moved here a few months before her, but he's a civil engineer. In his industry, business is especially good, with lots of construction projects underway across the country in preparation for the upcoming 2014 World Cup and 2016 Olympics. So he and others like him are seizing the moment. In Portugal, things are really bad because of the crisis, and here things are so good and even better for engineers because there's so much work to do, so much things to do. So I noticed if I wanted to do something to come here, it was the the right time to, to come. Brazil's government says the number of Portuguese workers in Brazil shot up from 277,000 in 2010 to at least 330,000 last year, and that's just the people here legally. This isn't the first time the Portuguese have looked to their former colonies for their own economic survival. Sousa's grandparents made the same journey decades ago, but unlike that generation, which earned a reputation for being hardworking manual laborers, many of today's Portuguese migrants are armed with college degrees and better. Rui Matos da Costa is a Portuguese lawyer who's lived here since last year. This is the saddest thing of all. Portugal is, is a country that could give us a good education could prepare us for a competitive world, but couldn't give us a job. And that's just crazy. While Brazil's economy has taken a dip recently, it's still relatively strong. In April, it surpassed the UK as the world's sixth largest economy.
DaCosta says the shared language and bilateral cultural exchange through television and film made Brazil a natural choice. He's now licensed to practice law in both Portugal and Brazil. Over a plate of traditional Portuguese pastries, DaCosta explains what he saw at home in Portugal was a struggle ahead for all generations. Right now, people feel like there is no future. And not only for my friends of my age, but for my parents as well. It's really hard right now. There is no Portugal dream. And that's the prevailing attitude among the many Portuguese who now call Rio home. As they have so many times before, they seem to have accepted their fate. And Brazil has accepted them, despite Portugal's one-time subjugation of its former colony. We treated them really bad, and now we, we kind of need them. And they are being better for us than we were for them, I, I think it, it's fair to say. In Rio, it certainly seems like the past is the past. Brazilian Jose Barros has spent the last 30 years as a waiter here. In Brazil and Rio de Janeiro, we accept anyone. It's the best place in the world. The Portuguese, most of all, they deserve their luck. They work really hard. They made something from their life and they earned it. Although visa regulations don't always make it easy for migrants to work here legally, many are desperate enough to come anyway, hoping permission to work will work itself out. Economist Marcelo Neri says the current situation is a win-win for everyone. The Portuguese need jobs and Brazil needs more skilled workers. The labor market is doing pretty well and there is a lack of well-educated people. So I think Brazil is really a land of opportunity, especially during the current scenario, to work here, you earn good money, there is a need for highly skilled professionals. Hugo Gonçalves, a Portuguese journalist based here in Rio, recalls the outrage when officials back home, including Portugal's prime minister, actually advised people to leave the country if they couldn't find work. I guess he was being honest, but if you're the prime minister, I mean, it's your job to provide that the people that were born in that country can stay in that country, at least that, you know. When you say you have to go, even if it's sincere, it's almost like you're, well, uh, I don't care anymore. Back at her new place, Ines Sousa says she's planning to stay at least for a few years, but being so far from home was hard from the start. I came to Brazil in January and my grandmother died two weeks after, so it was weird for me, it's like a cycle. It's like Brazil is in the story. And I was really sad because I couldn't be there. And there's the looming question of how the hemorrhaging of Portugal's best educated generation will affect the ailing country if and when it gets back on its feet. For The World, I'm Lily Jamali in Rio de Janeiro. A former Brazilian leader is to be honored in Washington. The Library of Congress announced today that Brazil's former president, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, will receive the John W. Kluge Prize for Lifetime Intellectual Achievement. This is an unusual choice because the award typically goes to philosophers and historians, not politicians. Paulo Sotero directs the Brazil Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. He agrees with others that Cardoso is a sort of Brazilian Thomas Jefferson because he laid the philosophical foundation and forged the political alliances that returned Brazil to democracy in 1985. He helps to put together forces from in the opposition of the military government uh, and uh, 
carve a way for a negotiated return to democracy. He's a key actor in all of that. Uh, behind the scenes, once Brazil becomes a democracy. Cardoso always said that Brazil is not an underdeveloped country. Brazil is, above all, an unjust society. And based on that belief, based on his enormous capacity for dialogue, his enormous intellectual energy, and his activism, he brings people together, forge alliances that put Brazil on the path Brazil is on today. Now, what, what was uh, one of the most salient examples of how he did that? Once he is, to his own surprise, called to be finance minister in Brazil in 1993, after Brazil had failed, had experimented and failed in every possible economic program, he manages to bring together a group of economists, a group of politicians and find the path to approve something that is called the Rio Plan. The Rio Plan refers to a currency that today is the currency of Brazil. Compromises in democracy with open elections, in a Congress with a multi-party system, he is the key person that brings this together for the first time in more than three decades, Brazil finds itself with a stable economy, and it's on that basis that he is elected and re-elected president of Brazil. One of the things that Cardoso also did was to come to the conclusion that racially based servitude in Brazil acted as a direct contributor to social backwardness and economic backwardness. That was revolutionary at the time. Yes, and he went to the south of Brazil, states colonized by Italians and Germans that had very little presence of uh, African slaves, but he found the same structure in that part of Brazil that existed in other parts of Brazil. He determined that Brazil had a systemic problem of a social structure based on slavery and that it had to be faced, it had to be tackled. And that's what he ends up doing as both a militant and later as president. Cardoso has the courage to go on national television and tell the Brazilians that there is no such thing as a racial democracy in Brazil. We were led to believe by sociologists in Brazil that Brazil was sort of a, some kind of perfect society where there is no racial tension. And he is the person that introduces the first programs of affirmative action to so Brazil can have, as it has today, black professors, black diplomats, black businessmen. A long way to go, but he is uh, really a pioneer as a politician, bringing to the country that reality and forcing the country to face it and to act on it. Paulo Sotero directs the Brazil Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington. He was speaking to us about Brazil's former president, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who's getting the John W. Kluge Prize for Lifetime Intellectual Achievement from the Library of Congress. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be with you. Tomorrow on The World, a performance that'll make the earth move under your feet on PRI.
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow. Discover the treasures of Minneapolis, including a 1900 McKinley Roosevelt campaign poster and an intense yellow diamond ring valued at $140,000 to $160,000. Monday, May 21st at 8, 7 Central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The answer to our geo-quiz today involves a small contemporary art museum in southern Italy. The museum has embarked on a controversial campaign to protest budget cuts to the arts. Hello, I am Antonio Manfredi, uh, artist and uh, art director of Casoria Contemporary Art Museum in Casoria, uh, near Naples. And the town of Casoria is the answer to our quiz. Now, Manfredi says that the Contemporary Art Museum has pleaded with local officials and patrons to provide support. So far, no luck. So Manfredi came up with what seems like a desperate plan. The government cut the money for the institution, for cultural institution. Okay, we start burning art from the museum. He's totally serious. Last month, they started burning paintings and other works to get some attention. He's basically holding the artwork hostage. We destroy six paintings, uh, some photo, and uh, and one wood sculpture, and it is not a joke. Manfredi says a similar fate awaits the rest of the museum's collection if government funding doesn't materialize. He says he'll burn three paintings a week. If the, the political, the institution, don't think that the art and the culture in general is not important for the country, the artist can destroy this art without problem. John Brown is all for it. He is an artist in Wales. He contributed one of his own pieces made out of paper to burn in symbolic protest. In fact, I was working on a piece called Manifesto, which um, was actually uh, underlying a political um, statement on our uh, government as it is at the moment now, who make manifestos that people vote for, and then when they get into power, they scrap the manifesto. So I made a sculpture as a protest of that. So they're empty manifestos, basically. I decided to burn one uh, because it was uh, something that would attract a lot of attention, and and it actually has. John Brown says a video of the burning has generated thousands of hits and mostly supportive comments. There is a case to be made for art as a valuable part of human experience. And that's what I really believe. As for those who say the protest is destroying the very art the museum's trying to save, Brown brushes that off. He says art doesn't have to exist in a physical form. It can live on in your mind. And museum director Antonio Manfredi is not backing down. Uh, next, tomorrow, we destroy a marble sculpture. Yes, uh, it's an abstract sculpture. It's not clear how long Manfredi will keep up the campaign, but Italy's economy is in serious trouble, and more funding for the arts does not seem to be in the cards right now. Finally, we return to Greece. As we mentioned earlier in the program, elections there have led to political stalemate. The vote more than a week ago left no party with a clear majority. One group that did fairly well, though, was the far-right Golden Dawn Party. It garnered an unprecedented 7% of the vote. Fear of Golden Dawn is coming from an unlikely group, Greek fans of black metal. They're worried that their brand of heavy metal will be further tainted by one of Golden Dawn's new parliamentarians, 
He's a bassist in a black metal band. Matthew Brunwasser explains. Chaos, as Greeks like to say, is a Greek word, and Greeks might agree that the election of a black metal musician to a country's legislature does not bode well for political stability. This is the band that everyone in Greece is talking about these days. It's called Nair Matero. It's not often that a black metal band gets to bask in the glow of the mainstream media spotlight. But it's even less common that the bassist from a black metal band becomes a member of parliament. Stefano Stefanopoulos from the webzine rockway.gr explains. Black metal is a, a type of heavy metal, but it's uh, more aggressive and more atmospheric. And uh, instead of clean vocals, the singers uh, are using growls. They are more brutal vocals. Georgos Germenis will represent Golden Dawn from the Greater Athens District. His band is called Nair Mataron, and he's known by the stage name Kaedis. That's the chasm in ancient Sparta where children were thrown to their deaths after being judged unfit to meet the rigors of Spartan life. Stephanopoulos's black metal lyrics often concern satanic and pre-Christian pagan themes, and Nair Mataron is pretty much run-of-the-mill. He wasn't a well-known musician here in Greece. And to be honest, not many websites were paying attention to, to Nair Mataron. It was just another black metal band, a mediocre one, so no one was really paying attention. That's changed now. The Greek media is looking for connections between Nair Mataron's music, their bloody ghoulish stage attire, and Golden Dawn's politics. Germanis, Kaedis, says there is none. Take this song. Death Casts a Shadow Over You, from Nair Mataron's latest album, Praetorium. Death Casts a Shadow Over You is a song about the feelings that the black metal fans have when they hear our band performing live on stage. It's a metaphor for the shadow they feel covering them when we play. As for politics, Germanis says there's an easy solution for Greece's myriad economic problems. First, the country needs to resolve its sea border issues with neighboring countries. There'd be big money and gas and oil exploration, which would return Greece to greatness. He blames unspecified interests for holding Greece back. We Golden Dawn say that Greece is a rich country. In order to rebuild Greece, we also need to revitalize our factories and small workshops. In this way, Greece can stand on its own two feet. We don't need the European Union or anyone else. We just need the Greeks. With coalition building in Greece now in limbo, it's unclear what effect Germanis and Golden Dawn will have on Greek politics. But Stephanopoulos says there is one definite side effect of his ascension to politics. Black metal has gotten a black eye. Most of uh, the musicians claim to believe in satanism and stuff, and uh, they're blasphemers. Okay, they had already a bad name. Now it's even worse, you know. <laughs> now you're a satanist and a nationalist, too. <laughs> Greek democracy isn't looking so great either. Greeks are already talking about if the new parliament will form rather than when. 
But whether or not the electoral success of Golden Dawn will go anywhere, Nair Mataron will continue to delve into the darker world below. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser. The world's team in Boston includes Stephen Snyder and Mary Lou Ward. In London are Rob Hugh Jones, Ian Rosser, and Rahul Joglicker. The world's engineers are Robin Moore, Tina Toby, Louis Cronin, and Mike Wilkins. Our online team is led by Stephen Davey with Michael Rass and Manya Gupta. They keep us online at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins, and we're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.